I would ask that you take your Bibles and let's turn once more to Luke chapter 4, as we've been enjoying Luke down through the, uh, through the uh, season of Christmas and Advent and somewhat through Epiphany. We come back to it today, the first Sunday of Lent. We're going to start with the first verse of the fourth chapter. And as we've been speaking throughout the day, this first Sunday of Lent is, of course, a reminder of what sin does in our world. It's the time of the Christian year in which we stop and think about why Jesus Christ had to come and what the suffering that he experienced is a result of our sin, the ways that we harm one another and the ways that we miss what God is intending to do, both within our lives and within the world as a whole. And so the church takes these 40 days, minus the Sundays, and allows us to prepare for Easter and for the great celebration of Jesus Christ's victory over sin. Then we take the whole rest of the year to celebrate. Uh, Easter tide is, is seven weeks long, and it's a wonderful celebration of that, of course. A while back, Scott Peck, after he became a Christian, wrote a book that was a profound one. It was called People of the Lie, The Hope for Curing Human Evil. And he said something in it that I read decades ago that has haunted me ever since I read it. He says, since the primary motive of evil is disguise, one of the places evil people are most likely to be found is within the church. What better way to conceal one's evil from oneself as well as from others than to be a deacon or some other highly visible form of Christian within our culture? He even says, and I tried to find this quote, but I could not find it, but he says something like this. The closer you get to the altar, the greater the evil. Now, I think of that this morning as we begin Lent, and we're going with Jesus as he begins his public ministry. The very first thing that happens after his baptism is that he enters into the wilderness. There are so many things about this event that is so haunting that it is something we both avoid and we come to and try to understand how does temptation, how does evil so get a grasp of good-intended people, good-hearted people, people who do not intend to do evil, how does it happen that then we hurt the very ones we love or cause there to be difficulty within the world as a whole? There are two things about this event I want to point out first that I think are the most haunting for us as Christians, as followers of Christ. The first is that obvious statement. Danielle even said it in her prayer that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days, and that's a figure of speech meaning for a very long time, he was tempted by the devil. Now look at that, full of the Holy Spirit, that's what I want to be. Led by the Spirit, that's what we all want to be. That is the context of the temptation. It's also, of course, why Jesus said, when his disciples said to him, teach us how to pray, he adds in that prayer that the early church did three times a day and were to do every day, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. 
That's a very haunting thing as we read the story. Think about what that means. The second haunting aspect is in the final statement of this temptation experience in which we're told that the devil was not discouraged by his outright defeat by Jesus, but rather he leaves him and waits for an opportune time. Now, as we look at the life of Jesus, we know when some of those times were, they were pointed out to us by the writers of the gospel. One of them is when he has to correct Peter, who out of deep compassion is simply wanting him to not have to go to Jerusalem and to die on the cross. And he turns and tells him that's a satanic uh, kind of desire for him. And the other is when he struggles in Gethsemane, where the cross is just hours away. And it's there that he comes and he's tempted to not follow through, to not do what he's actually come to do in that final finishing of the race and doing the task that he is meant to do. We can see by Jesus' example then that, that temptation can come when somebody is simply loving us, but tempting us to do something that will in fact be harmful to us and to them and to the purposes of our lives. But it can also come when we are discouraged and we're facing the difficulties of life and things are, are happening in such a way that, that we would rather not drink this cup. We'd rather not go down this road. And it's in those moments, of course, that it's an opportune time where Satan can tempt us. So as we look at that and kind of these bookends of the text itself, we want to, to look at the whole. And we want to walk with Jesus through this experience as Christians have done now the first Sunday of Lent for thousands of years. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to only read through the first 13 verses, which is the full account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Luke writes, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If... You are the Son of God. Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. 
I'll keep that open before you. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you did not leave us in the dark when it comes to temptation and evil. We're so thankful that the church has given us the guidance to take some time to look deeply inwardly and outwardly, to understand evil, to understand temptation, to know how it works so that we're not naive when it happens and that we're able to know what to do and, and how to save a world from this warring madness that has so plagued us. And so be with us as your people in this, our generation, our responsibility. Help each of us. And of course, we'll give you praise. Amen. Just as there are things about this that haunt us, there are things, in fact, about this that comfort us. Not in the sense of being comfortable. None of us like this story or like the account of it. But there is comfort in realizing that if this can happen to Jesus, then of course when it happens to us, it is not to be unexpected. In fact, Paul explains that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. And not only are we all in this together, having the same things happening, tempting us, even though we all act as though it's not happening uh, to me, yet it's happening to all of us in the same way. Paul continues and says, And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. In 2011, uh, a researcher at the University of Albany discovered something that the scriptures had taught us for thousands of years, and yet now the science has caught up to it. And it's a, a finding with which all of us can identify. We, we've all experienced it. His name is Mark Muravin, and he called his discovery ego depletion, uh, but others are calling it temptation fatigue. Uh, basically, what he discovered is this. Willpower is like a muscle. And when you've used a muscle in one instance repeatedly, it decreases in strength until it can no longer do the work. And in that moment, it has no strength to do what it was designed to do. And temptation fatigue then means that if you hang out in a donut shop long enough, you'll eat a donut. <laughs> and that kind of temptation causes us over time, in an instance, to be unable to resist. We become morally, temptationally exhausted, fatigued. Our ego has become depleted, which means within psychological terms that the self that we want to be can no longer be that self because we've fallen into a different and lesser self. We have ego depletion. Now it's interesting that the scriptures do not tell us that God will give us the strength to stay in the presence of a temptation, but rather to find a way out, a way of escaping, a way of getting away from 
that temptation before we fall. Even more clearly, Paul tells us throughout his words that we are to not fight temptation, but flee from it. Get away from it. Get away from the situations, uh, the channels, uh, the iPhones, the magazines, the people who are tempting you. Get away from them. Flee from it because you will have temptation fatigue if you stay and it will be difficult to withstand. But that takes us back to the temptation with Jesus. He was led by the Spirit into the place where the devil could tempt him. So not all temptations can be fled. Sometimes the very work that we are doing for God will take us into the temptation to do that work through an evil or an inopportune power or fame rather than through God's power and through God's honor and to his praise and to his glory. Now, I know that we can look at these temptations in a whole host of ways. I've taught them many times over the, the years. And we can look at it the most common way, of course, is to look at it as a physical kind of temptation, the bread, the political power to rule the world as a politician, the miraculous fame that comes from being able to have religious or miraculous power. In the more vernacular, the church has called those three money, sex, and power as the deepest and most common of all temptations. But this morning, let's look at them in a, in a unique way. Each of us are doing the work of God. We've been given spiritual gifts and ability to do that work. And as we follow him and experience that time of ministry, this lesson tells us that temptation will come when we are filled with the Spirit doing the work of God. Jesus has just begun his public ministry. He's just now going to be the one doing the ministry in the world. So Jesus is tempted in that place to be a social worker, uh, to supply bread. That that's what the world needs. We need to simply supply bread to those who are impoverished, turn the stones into bread. He is tempted in that moment and not to be the Messiah, the Savior, the transformer of the human heart and human beings, but to be a political leader. And that is through politics that we're going to find the Savior, which is what that word means, the one that is going to lead us out of all of this into eternal peace, control the governments of the world. He's tempted in that moment to be the religious miracle worker, the one that can bring about this sense of awe, can change the power of gravity so that he doesn't smash the bottom of the foot of the temple. If he had done that, of course, Jesus of Nazareth would have been just a blip on the screen of history. He would have come and gone and be forgotten like all social workers and all politicians and all miracle workers. He wouldn't have changed the world. He would have succumbed to the temptations of the way the world says it can be changed. We needed and still need a human who can show us how to live real lives with a surpassing love that can create peace on earth and goodwill 
among us. We need it and we still need a redeemer who can heal this brokenness that causes us to be unable to love. We need to be healed and given the power of the Spirit to love eternally both God and others and ourselves. But that brings it back then to you and to me. How are we to do our ministry for Christ? What are the temptations that you experience as you do your ministries? How can we stand in the midst of the storms and temptations that will inevitably come upon you, upon me, and upon us as the church, both this church and the church worldwide? Well, I would suggest that there are three simple things, and I'm just going to mention them. I encourage you to take time and meditate upon them during the course of these 40 days. And then there's kind of a more complex thing I want to focus on a little more. The simple ones are these. First, and I, I want to state it in the double negatives. I know all English teachers will say don't do that. But I'm going to state it in a double negative. Do not think that we will not experience spiritual opposition or temptation when we are following God. Sometimes Christians think that if I'm in God's place, I will not be tempted. It's like a safe zone or something like that. And in fact, in my experience, the strongest temptations come, the strongest opposition comes when we are, in fact, following God and doing what he's called us and asked us to do. For it's at that point that you're on the front line of the good and evil battle. Second, answer this spiritual opposition and these temptations with Scripture. Know the Word of God. And if the opposition uses Scripture, as Satan does when he gets to that third temptation, continue to have faith in the Word of God. Don't try to think that other resources or to change the battlefield will solve it. Jesus met Scripture with Scripture. Trust the word to have the final word. Trust the word of God. It is truth. You can trust the word. But let the word speak to the word when someone misuses the word of God in order to enslave or harm or hold down someone. Third, recognize what the opportune times are in our lives. When are we most vulnerable now, it's true that temptations are common to all. All of us have the same temptations. But we each have kind of that opportune time in which we have that particular personal vulnerability to it. Identify that. In counseling, we call them triggers. What are the moments when you're most likely to fall to temptation in your spiritual walk and your journey with God? Now those are the three very simple things that you can learn from this that are profoundly helpful in living the spiritual life. The last one's a little more complex. What temptations do our own unique gifts and ministries cause us to experience? For Jesus, his ministry was to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so the temptation for him came to do it in counterfeit ways. 
not be the actual Messiah, but to be something of a counterfeit and solving lesser kinds of problems. So how is that true for you? How is that true for me? First, think of your gifts, your abilities, your advantages. How are you tempted to misuse those gifts and abilities and advantages just for yourself, for your own advancement? How does the devil in your life keep you from building God's kingdom with God's ways for God's purposes and for the common good, for the well-being of all? How does that get tempted to be just for you? Now, I can't speak for you, of course. I encourage you to, to seek God's face on that. But I can speak about it from my own perspective, my own experience. And I, I share this with you as an analogy for how it works in other gifting and in other ways. As a pastor, most of us as pastors in the ministry of Christ are given the gifts of compassion, deep empathy. That is a pervasive gift for the pastor. We also sometimes have gifts of teaching and guidance such that we can help people understand the truth of God and to be guided in the circumstances of life. And still some pastors have been given gifts of leadership and administration. Now, how can that, those gifts be misused? Well, we have historical and current evidence of that in all kinds of ways. In literature, of course, we have Elmer Gantry. Elmer Gantry is this satirical image where the young narcissist becomes a pastor and uses his position to manipulate and to abuse the very people God wants him to serve. And that can be true for a pastor. You can use what empathy and leadership and teaching gives. Often we call it charisma for personal gain. I don't know if you saw the clip on Christian television a month ago where two television evangelists are having a conversation about how God gave them private jets so that, quote, we can talk to God in private. They both claimed that without these jets they wouldn't have the necessary sanctuary in order to pray. Now, when it's obvious like that, then, of course, everyone can see hypocrisy. And we all recognize the Elmer Gantries and that kind of, of misuse of God's resources and then to justify it in such a, a weird way that you can't pray unless you're at 30,000 feet in your own jet. But it's interesting that most of us don't experience it in such obvious ways. And that reality that we can be self-deceptive, I believe these gentlemen really believe that. And we can be self-deceptive and we can use our gifts and our abilities for ourselves and our own gain is the temptation of pastors. 
In most of our lives, temptation never reaches that level of the Elmer Gantry or the private jet sanctuary. For most of us, it comes in subtle forms of pride, attention, prestige, even inordinate or inappropriate love. It can, on the reverse side, come in the form for pastors of a martyr complex, a messiah complex, uh, an unhealthy sacrifice of self. But for all of us, it comes. So what about you? Think about your own gift and your own ministry, your responsibility in the kingdom. How are you tempted to do it in a counterfeit way or a self-serving way? How can your gift be distorted? How can your abilities be used for selfish gain rather than the common good and the kingdom of God? Peace on earth. As we've noted, today is the first Sunday of Lent. We now have, in the Christian year, 40 days set aside for us to focus in on these kinds of things and how they can keep us from the joy of the Lord and the ministry of his kingdom to establish his wonderful presence on the earth. It's a time when we look at the destructive nature of sin, what it does when it happens at, at global levels and what happens when it happens in singular, particular souls and lives. So I encourage you during these 40 days to listen to God. Uh, take, take particular time. Set it aside. Just simply listen. Hear his counsel, his correction. Uh, fast from the perks of your position, whatever that might look like. Look at your prides and dignities. What do you get indignant about? And why does your pride call for that. Feast on God and control the body. Flee from temptation. Fly into the arms of God. Let this be a wonderful time of self-reflection as we each become more Christ-like in both our ministry and our lives. Let's spend time with him.